continuing in John. So if you would turn to your sermon discussion guide with me this morning, uh, or you can also turn in your pew Bible, which would be on page 886. We're going to be looking at John um, verses 19 through 29 this morning. The Gospel of John, at this point as we enter into the history of God's people, the history of the Jews, at this point in time, 2,000 years ago, the Jews had a very great longing for an answer. For over 600 years, they have been ruled by foreign nations. They had been derided as a worthless minority. They lacked political power. They lacked social position, material wealth, and they lacked religious significance. What held them together through these years were their cultural traditions, their study of the Word of God, and the various laws that they had. And it was through this combination that they had a hope that one day, that one day they would be significant, that God would send the one who would come and give them the significance for which they were searching for, the one who would be anointed, the one who would be set apart. And while over the course of time and in Jewish practice, there were many people who were anointed, many people who were set apart, this was not just an anointed one, this was the anointed one, the Mashiach, the Messiah, the, as the New Testament would translate it, the Christ, that the Christ would come and be the one who would bring the answers, the longing, their longings would be fulfilled and satisfied, that the Christ would come and end their quest for significance. And so it is into this context, into this historical moment, this moment of national and individual quest that this story occurs. Beginning in verse 6, it says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. Skipping down to verse 19. And this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then, are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that your Spirit would give us insight into your Word, that we would indeed behold the Lamb of God, that we would find the answer to our longings, and that we would see the counterfeits in this life for what they are. So, Spirit, 
Would you come among us and teach us through your word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. The author Leo Tolstoy wrote what has been widely regarded as the one, two, or maybe you know, the top three greatest novels in world literature, namely War and Peace. Tolstoy also wrote another book in 1879 called A Confession. And in this book, A Confession, Tolstoy um, tells the story of his search for meaning and his search for purpose in life. Rejecting Christianity as a child, Tolstoy went to the university and he left his university seeking pleasure. And in Moscow and Petersburg, he drank heavily, lived promiscuously, and he gambled frequently. His goal in life and his ambition was to become wealthy and famous, but nothing satisfied him. In 1862, he married a loving wife, and they ended up having 13 children together. And he was, from the outside, surrounded by what appeared to be complete happiness. He was successful. He had a, seemed to have a good marriage, a good family. And yet, there was one question that continued to haunt him, one question that haunted him to the verge of suicide. And the question was this, is there any meaning in my life? which will not be annihilated by the inevitability of death which awaits me? Is there any meaning in my life which will not be annihilated by the inevitability of death which awaits me? Nicky Gumbel, in the book The Questions of Life, explains what triggered Tolstoy's conversion. She writes, He searched for the answer in every field of science and philosophy. As he looked around at his contemporaries, he saw that people we're not facing up to the first-order questions of life. First-order questions such as, where did I come from? Where am I going? Who am I and what is life all about? And Tolstoy looked around and he saw that people weren't facing up to these questions. She characterizes. She said, Tolstoy was searching for the Christ in anything and everything. He was searching for the Christ in anything and everything. He was searching for the answer. He was searching for the thing that would give him significance, that would answer the question, what is life all about, and make sense of who he is, and that would not be destroyed by the inevitability of death. He was searching for the Christ in everything and anything. That same search continues in the hearts of people today, maybe in your own heart today. But for Tolstoy, eventually, he found the Christ. And when he found the Christ, he found the answer. Last week, as we began to enter into the Gospel of John, we saw how John begins to answer the question of, who am I and where did I come from? This week, we begin to see the answer to the question of, what is life about and where is it that this answer, this longing for significance, where is the answer found in this longing for significance satisfied. And so John begins and he shares this account of John the Baptist and he makes very clear that other people are not the Christ. Others are not the Christ. This is what he says. This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And they asked him the question, are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. At this point, John the Baptist has been creating quite a stir. He is a bit of an odd duck. He's one who wears garments of camel hair, as the other Gospels tell us. He lives only in the wilderness. 
His diet was locusts and wild honey. And despite all of these oddities, he had people who were flocking to him. People who were longing to see him. People were coming to him and they were getting baptized. And people were starting to follow his, te- starting to follow his teaching. And John was providing something for people that they were looking for. And he seemed to be the answer. He seemed to be able to solve their problems. And who knows, maybe John would be the one who would be the answer. He would be the one who would free them from the Romans. Yet no matter how much people wanted from him, no matter how much people wanted him to be, John could not be the answer. John should not be the answer. John had absolutely no ability to be the answer because John was not the Christ. And yet, despite his total inability, despite the fact that he readily professed this, other people longed for him to be the Christ and longed for him to be what he was not. For many of us, it can happen that we want other people to be our Christ. We want other people to provide the answers that we, you know, we have within us a deep, deep longings, deep aspirations, that within every one of us there is this yearning for our soul to be satisfied. And what is so easy for us to do is to take our hopes, to take our expectations, to, to take this sense of this gnawing, nagging, this emptiness that we have inside of our life and the hopes that we have with that and the hurts that we have, and we take our deep longings and our aspirations and our yearnings and we take them and we dump them on another person for that other person to be the one that's going to be the answer. The other person would be the one who's going to satisfy our soul, who's going to be our savior from whatever turmoil, and the one who's going to be our deliverer, the one who's going to be make us complete, or the one who's going to be our Christ. And it can happen between friends. It can happen between parents towards their children. They look for their children to provide a meaning and significance in their life that the child is incapable of bearing. Children can look for it from their parents. Husbands can look for it from their wives or wives from their husbands. It can happen in any relationship. But let's take, for example, a couple we'll call David and Jessica. Two of them you know, began to have interest in one another. They enjoyed being around with, one, being around with each other. Pretty soon they became you know, interested in each other and were spending their time together. They became consumed with the other person. And you know, as Jessica was working through this, you know, she became convinced that David was the man who was, you know, going to be the one who was going to fulfill her hopes and dreams. She was going to be the guy that she was looking for. And she, she had longings that were common to each and one of us, not anything particularly out of the ordinary. She also had longings for a Christ that's common to each one of us. And given her past, you know, she was someone who was She had been repeatedly hurt as she was raised. There was a lot of pain and brokenness from her family, pain and brokenness that she had from past relationships. And yet, as this relationship, she's wary of her own past and she's wary of her hurt. David really feels like he's the answer. So the relationship progresses. And time and time again, she takes her heart and she sticks it out there for him. And she sticks her heart out there for him, just hoping, expecting that he is going to take it and that he's going to hold it and that he's going he's to heal it and he's going to 
he's going to heal some of the many hurts that she has. But instead, he just tramples on it again. And there's a good chance he doesn't even know that he's doing it. And so they get married, and over time, it becomes clear that David is not the answer. I mean, he's got too many flaws. He himself has created too many hurts. And so her initial response was, you know what? I'm going to train him in order to be the godly man, the godly husband, the godly father that he should be. So she begins to nag him so that she can get him to change. And quite frankly, he probably needs to grow as a man and grow as a father and grow as a husband and grow as a leader. He probably does, but that's not the point. The point is, is that she is wanting him to be something for her that he cannot be, something that he should not be, something that he has absolutely no ability to be. She wants him to be her Christ, but the problem is that others are not the Christ. In my own life, I had two close friends that I lost because I wanted them to be my Christ. That I was a leech in our relationships. I, had put, I put expectations on other people that they are incapable of fulfilling and incapable of satisfying. Seeking someone to be for me what only Jesus can be for me. And it's very easy for us to put those longings and desires that only God can fulfill, to put that on another person. And it's so honestly stated in the recent song, you set off a dream in me, getting louder now, can you hear it echoing, take my hand, will you share this with me, because darling, without you, because darling, without you, this is what it hinges on, without you, all the shine of a thousand spotlights, all the stars we steal from the night sky, will never be enough. Towers of gold are still too little. These hands could hold the world, but it will never be enough. Never enough. Jenny Lynn croons in The Greatest Showman. But she's just re-expressing what is a desire that every one of us has. This desire within us for a Savior, a desire for the Christ, and how much we want to look for another person to fulfill it. But they cannot because others are not the Christ. And no matter how much the crowds wanted John the Baptist to be the Christ, he was not. So the Christ is not in others. But it's also not in ourselves. Let's take a look at this from the different perspective. We've looked at how we can look towards other people to be the Christ for us. But at the same time, we can, other people can also look to us. And in fact, we can even want other people to look to us to be the Christ in their life. Notice how this develops in John's clear testimony. He says this, He confessed, and he did not deny, but he confessed, I am not the Christ. Apparently, this was an issue over the course of his life, because three chapters later, he's saying the same thing again. His disciples are together with the Jews, and John says to them, you yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ. I've been sent before him. It wasn't just a one-time incident. People were constantly looking for him to be the Christ. So trying to make sense of this, they say to John, well, wait a second, if you're not the Christ, what then? Are you Elijah? For Scripture foretold that there would be a great prophet like Elijah who would come and prepare the way for the Lord. And he says, nope, I'm not. 
Are you the prophet? There was a belief that Moses would return and reinstitute the law, and there would be a renewal of the law of God. And he says, nope, I'm not, I'm not the prophet. For John, there's absolutely no pretense in his answer. Are you the answer? I am not. Can you help us? Surely I cannot. Certainly you're the Christ. No, I am not. Surely you're the forerunner of the Christ. Can't help you. Are you the one that we should be looking for? I'm not him. He confessed freely and he did not deny, I am not the Christ. People, each one of us, is that we are looking for a Savior. We are looking for the Christ. Augustine said eloquently, our souls are restless until they find their rest in you. I mean that every one of us, our souls are restless. We go around looking for things, looking for other people to satisfy us, looking for other stuff to satisfy us. Our souls are restless, O oh God, until they find their rest in you. One of, the, one of the outworkings of this means that others may want us to be the Christ in their life. Others may want us to satisfy that role. Now, how does that develop? Well, it can happen that, you know, you're helping somebody, maybe with a pure motive, and someone sees something in you. May they actually see Christ. Maybe they actually see Christ in you. And they see it in you, and they say, you know what? I like that. This person's helpful. I've got these needs. This person's able to meet some of that. And so they start to ask and start to require more and more and more of your time, not willing to say no, not really respecting any boundaries. For some of us, what we need to say in that situation is... What John said, I am not the Christ. I I am not what you're looking for. I cannot be what you're looking for. I should not be what you're looking for. And so, if you're in that situation, you need to confess and confess freely and do not deny that you are not the Christ. But the biggest challenge for us doing so is it's so intoxicating when someone treats you that way. When someone treats you like you're the person that's got all the answers. When someone treats you like, you know what, you're a person who's really got their life together. You're someone who, I I want more of you in my life so I can have less of the issues in my life. You know, I look around this room, I look around our community, a community of successful people, highly educated, people who excelled above their high school peers, excelled above their college peers, excelled above, excelled in their career People who have been who, that there has been very little that if they set their mind to it, they have not begun to accomplish it. There's things that you have done that maybe other people couldn't do. And God has given you, God has gifted you, God has given you these gifts and these abilities in service, you know, to serve him. But the problem becomes when we stop recognizing them as the gift that God has given to us and we start actually believing that you are the gift that God has given and you start actually believing, you know what? I am the man. You know, or woman, right? I've never said that, but, right? I am the man. I, I, you know what? I, I, I do have this together. And when people start to look for you, I mean, who doesn't, you know, people want, who doesn't want to be in the position where you've got the power, where you've got the prestige, where you've got the position, when people say, you know what? You want to know who really has their act together? It's that person over there. I mean, talk to them, I mean, because they have got it going on. All of us want to be regarded that way. And when it starts to happen, it feels really intoxicating. It feels like, wow, check me out. Look at this. Now, for some of you, your experience is not that you've obtained that, but your experience is the opposite, that you feel like a failure. You feel like you don't measure up in so many regards. But it's really just the same thing. 
is that you're looking for a significance in your performance. You're looking for a significance in your efforts. You're looking for a significance in the way that other people view you. But doing so only leaves you more empty and with a greater gnawing, naggingness, a greater aspect of emptiness within you. I'm not a uh, Tom Brady hater. I'm not a Tom Brady fan, but I'm not a Brady hater. Um, and Tom Brady, in an interview after he won several Super Bowls, he said this in his interview. He said, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me? I think it's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't. This, this can't be. This can't be what it's all cracked up to be. The interviewer asks Brady, well, what's the answer then? And Brady responds, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. Is that we cannot be. We should not try to be. We not... We should not pretend to, that we even have the capacity to be the Christ. Because the Christ is not found in others and is not found in ourselves. Well, where is, is it found? It is found in Jesus, who is the Christ. This is what, Paul, what John says in verse 20. Again, he, did not, he confessed and did not deny, but he confessed. Notice how many times it's repeated. He says it multiple times. He confessed and he did not deny, but he confessed, I am not the Christ. Well, if he's not the Christ, who is? It's Jesus. If, he's, if John is not the answer, if he's not the, the person that's going to bring wholeness and completion in your life, if he's not the one who's going to bring significance and meaning, who is? And John says, it's not me, it is Jesus. And for each one of us to have an answer to this question, this question that Tolstoy wrestled with, what meaning, there is, what meaning is there in this life that the inevitability of death will not eliminate? The answer to that is to find Jesus Christ and to know him as the Christ of your life. But how do you do that? Well, it begins by acknowledging and sharing John's confession that I'm not the Christ, by saying I'm not the answer. I can't do it. I can't find it within myself, and I can't find it in another person. But even more than that, there's a deeper recognition that we need to have. When John was pressed on who he is, he answered them when he was asked about baptizing. He says, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. I'm not worthy to untie it. Now, of course, and we read that, we can see that's an act of humility to say, I'm not worthy to untie someone else's shoes. But for the Jews, there was a much bigger meaning to this. Because, mind you, they're in an agricultural society. They're wearing their sandals. They're on dirty, dusty roads. There's mud on the roads. There's animals are the principal mode of transportation. There's animal manure and who knows what else on the road. And so when people came in, it was viewed as a disgusting practice to have your sandals untied because, indeed, it was disgusting. And if you were a Jewish, a Jew, um, you were allowed to have your slaves untie your sandals, and that would be a common practice for slaves to untie your sandals. However, it was viewed as so despicable that they would not allow a Jewish slave to do so. 
It was only a Gentile slave who was allowed to untie someone's sandals. The Gentiles, who were the hated, inferior race, who were viewed as people who were so unclean, so dirty, that there's no way that they could have a relationship with God. Those were the ones who were allowed to untie sandals. And John says, yes, I am not the Christ, but not only am I not the Christ, in fact, the one who is coming after me, Jesus, the straps of his sandals, I am not worthy to untie. I bring nothing to him. I bring nothing to offer to him except my own baggage, my own filth, my own brokenness, and my own sin. That is all that I bring to him. And what the truth of Scripture is that for each one of us, we need to recognize not only are we not the Christ, but we're unworthy of him. And the amazing aspect of God's grace is when you recognize you're unworthy of him and you profess that Jesus is the Christ, he becomes the Christ in your life. That we cry out to the Lord and they say, Lord, I confess to you that I have looked for the Christ, for something to satisfy me in every other realm of life. But I acknowledge that you are the one that I seek, that you are the one that I long for, that in you the meaning of life is found, in you significance is found, in you love is found, all of it is found in you, Lord Jesus. And then not only do we profess that Jesus is the Christ to ourselves, but we also then do what John does and point others to him. There's two aspects to John's testimony of what he says. He's pressed on the question. He's asked, who are you then? He says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Who was John and what did he do? John the Baptist. John says, all I am is I am one saying, get ready. Prepare yourself. That there is a Christ and his name is Jesus, but right now you need to prepare yourself to receive him. You need to realize that you're not the Christ, that you're unworthy of the Christ. And once you come to realize that when you see Jesus, behold, there he is. Behold Jesus, who is the Christ. Behold the one who is the Lamb of God. So John does two things. He prepares people for the Christ and he points people to the Christ. It's the same role that we have in our own lives. Like John, we're not the light. We just simply bear witness to the light. We just simply point to it. And when John says here, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, there are two references from the Old Testament that John is referring to here and that develops over the course of the Gospel of John. The first one is Jesus as the Lamb, the Lamb of God who is the sacrificial Lamb. In the Old Testament system, What happens is that when people sin, our sin creates a debt. You know this experientially because when someone makes you really mad, there's a part of you that says, I want to make them pay, right? Our sin creates a debt. And when Scripture says in order for that debt to be paid, you're unable to pay it yourself, you need to have a substitute. And in the Old Testament, the substitute was a lamb who was offered in your place to be a substitute for the punishment that you you would deserve for your sins, And the sacrificial lamb of the various sacrifices in the Old Testament, the sacrificial lamb was the only one who was completely consumed. The rest of them, only a part of it was consumed, and then it would turn into a barbecue for everyone who gathered together. But for the sacrificial lamb, it was a pure and spotless lamb, and the whole thing would be offered up. And the whole thing would be offered up to atone, to cleanse people's sins, and to make them right with God. And so John is saying, behold the lamb of God. Behold the one who will be the sacrifice 
the one who will offer himself so that people could be made right with God, so that their sins could be forgiven. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But there's another reference, and that's to the Passover. Which, and in the Passover, there was the Passover lamb. And when the Passover was established at the time, God's people were in slavery in Egypt. And in slavery, God, they cried out to God, and God said that he would deliver them. And God said, well, what you need to do to, for my deliverance is you need to slaughter a lamb and take the blood of the lamb and paint it over the doorpost. And when God's judgment, when God's judgment comes through the land, when he sees the blood of the lamb over the doorpost, the, guy, the angel of death, God's judgment will pass over that house and you will be delivered. And so when also, as we'll see develop in the subsequent chapters, when John declares that Jesus is the lamb of God, he is not only the sacrificial lamb, but he is the Passover lamb. He is the one who causes God's judgment to pass over people. And not only does it pass over people, but this lamb, Jesus Christ, is the one who is leading a new exodus, who is setting people free from slavery, not the slavery of Egypt, but setting them free from the slavery of their own sin, setting them free from the punishment of sin that they are due. Not only that, but setting them free from the power of sin in their life, and one day when Christ returns, the very presence of sin will be removed. And so what Jesus is doing as the Passover lamb, the lamb of God, he is offering himself as a substitute, but he is also drawing a new people to himself, a people who would find that Jesus is the Christ, and that in him they would find the meanings of life and the significance of life. What is all of this to say? If you gather all this together, what is it to say? It is simply the call, our calling is this is to not, do not fail to confess, but confess freely. Confess freely that you and I are not the Christ. And not only confess freely that you and I are not the Christ, but profess and point other people to the truth that there is one and there is only, and it is Jesus who is the Christ. So let us point others to him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, we confess to you that words like Christ are so common to us that we lose the significance of what they mean. But Lord Jesus, you came to this earth because you are the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ, the long-awaited Savior and Deliverer. And not only are you the Christ, but you are the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world through your death on the cross and resurrection from the grave, by which you are leading forth a new people, a new people who know you and love you and worship you as the Christ. Lord, may we be that people. May you be our greatest desire and our greatest longing, and may we find our satisfaction in you and in you alone. In your son's name we pray, amen.